Welcome to the Net Effects Podcast, where Les Ottolenghi and Mark Bavasoto break down how the Fortune 500, the hottest startups, and the best VCs succeed through digital, social, and personal transformation. And now, here are your show hosts, Mark Bavasoto and Les Ottolenghi. It's our pleasure to welcome the women that went from transforming the manufacturing footprint in the window and door industry to leading technology for one of the largest healthcare systems in Wisconsin, the CIO of Marshfield Clinic Health System, Jerry Coaster. Welcome to the program, Jerry. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get started, a couple of house cleaning items to learn more about future and past guests of the NetFX podcast, go to netfxpodcast.com. So Jerry, we start off every podcast the same way. This is what we call unmasking the executive. So this is something that has to be an exclusive that nobody knows about Jerry. So what is a story the world doesn't know about Jerry that will help us get a better understanding of what shaped you as a person? Well, that's a very interesting question. So thinking back on one that is probably unique about me that not a lot of people know is that I drive a Harley. (laughs) Yes. And so very early on in age, as soon as I received my driver's license, I also went back and received my bike license and bought my first Harley uh, when I was 19 and was driving it ever since. So when my husband and I met each other, he actually had to ride on back for a while until he got his license. Um, but that was kind of an interesting story about us as we started that he was very comfortable with me leading in a lot of ways. That's yeah. got to be a metaphor for your whole career right, right there. No, <laughs> you, you just did it. <laughs> what drew you to the biking world? My parents. My parents drive Harleys. My dad does. My mom does. My brother has his own Harley. Uh, he married. Uh, his wife drives a Harley. So it's kind of in our nature. So Very Wisconsin. So uh, (laughs) I've actually been up to the Harley factory, the Harley Davidson spot, and that's an amazing place. Now, I'm assuming you've had a tour of Harley Davidson. I've been up in the Tomahawk area, but not in the Milwaukee area. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, what I like out front is they say no cages, right? They have these signs. What they mean is not a car, right? And Mm -hmm. if you have a bike, I'm certain preferably a Harley, you can park up right to the front of the building. They let you in there. You can. Oh yeah. That's that's pretty awesome. In thinking about that and in the description you just gave of people are comfortable with you being in charge, you clearly are in a big job. You have a big position with a lot of responsibility and arguably in an industry that is in the throes of change on a continuous (laughs) basis. I mean, I, I think healthcare is one of those sectors we'd all agree continues to change and seems to need the change. What strikes you today as some of the most important changes driven by technology, in particular from your position, that are affecting healthcare? There is a a significant amount of things that are changing, especially from a technology perspective. And I think it it was always on the horizon, but we definitely have to accelerate this technology adoption in healthcare. So when, you know, the last uh, 20 years, we've been implementing EHRs and automating a number of the workflows that we have within our healthcare organizations, but it necessarily hasn't made healthcare better. And now what we're moving into is much more of the conversation about a virtual and a physical model of healthcare. So 
it's listening and not only thinking about patients in the perspective of when they need us, but how do we help them from a wellness perspective and a population health management perspective. And so thinking about it from that way, you really have to start looking at your patients as customers as well and them understanding and designing the services with you. So that way, when we are implementing anything technology related in either a digital aspect of it or even from an optimization standpoint within the organization, we're thinking about it from the customer's perspective and what makes sense for them. And so instead of patients thinking about, I have to be here to changing it, I want to be here because I want to interact with you. And I want you to be involved with my healthcare, not only for when I'm sick, but as I go through this health journey that is way longer than when they actually are physically in our buildings. That's interesting because that seems to fit the theme of this show, this idea of continuous connection, the network effects. Does this mean that the experience for healthcare is shifting? It's anytime, place, anywhere. It really does need to be. And that's just the nature of human interaction now. Any industry right now is looking at ways that they can in touch, you know, touch their customers any place, anytime, anywhere. And if nothing we learn from COVID is that when you don't have the physical space, we need to be able to reach them in the space that they are. And so it really does transform into that type of interaction. And whether people want to be taken care of within their home, They want to be able to call in between meetings when they have a sinus infection or something like that, not necessarily having to take off of work and drive to a physical location. The interesting thing about this and something that weighs very heavily on my mind is that digital transformation is really about transforming the business and the way that you work. It's not necessarily always about the technology. And one thing that the technology does have to answer, especially when it comes to healthcare, is how does it make people feel? and creating that interaction because healthcare is very personal. And so part of the reason that people come physically to our buildings is because they want to see the physician or they want to be near the physician. And it's really creating that seamless interaction so that patient can be closer to the physician and making the patient feel valued and that we care in a digital way is one of the things that really comes to mind when we're designing those services. In that sense, I guess it, it's this engagement model where, again, you, you just described it very well. You don't have to come to the physical location, the doctor's office or the hospital or the clinic, and you're connected to that individual as a patient if you are a service or healthcare provider. Is this the same change also for the healthcare providers, giving them the sense of mobility and, and freeing them from the binds or the what binds them to a specific physical location? Absolutely. And so when we, with technology, it is all about how you incorporate that technology into the day-to-day interactions that the physicians need to do. And it doesn't have to be in a certain place or a certain time or located to a specific device. It needs to be much more seamless. And so one of the things in healthcare that has been plaguing us uh, significantly is physician burnout. And so when you think about physician burnout, we've implemented a ton of technology, but it has not enhanced the physician experience. So just like the consumer experience that we need to be thinking about from our patient perspective, we do need to be thinking about our physician experience and their perspective as well, anytime that we're doing any of this digital transformation. And so it's incorporating the workflow. 
surfacing the data at the right time, creating that interaction when and how they need it and where that they need it, instead of uh, tying them to having to, uh, you know, click through a whole bunch of screens or to be able to find and hunt for the data that they need. That's a huge task. Now, for the benefit of our audience who are tech leaders and aspiring tech leaders, take us a little bit through the journey of how you got to the position that you're in. Because I really want to ask some key questions of, you know, what does that road look like and what are the challenges that you had to overcome in order to get where you are today? My background is pretty dynamic from a perspective. So I'm a developer by trade. And so when I graduated with my undergrad, I went into IT startups. And one of the things that happens when you're working in a startup company is that you are doing a little bit of everything. And so you learn a little bit of everything. So it was just a tremendous experience to be able to work in an IT startup company and learning much more about the business and not necessarily looking at it from a vendor perspective. Then with life changes, my husband and I started a family, and so I didn't want to be traveling as much. So I ended up working in the window and door manufacturing industry, which was a tremendous experience as well, because not only was it, it was really neat to learn about workflow and automation and ensuring when you're looking at consumers and customers and designing applications associated to them that is going to enhance your business, you get a really neat opportunity to work with not only marketing, but continuous improvements. So that way you can design the systems, order the cash systems all the way through to develop the quality product that's going to be sold. And that's really where I learned a lot about it's always about people and process, then it's the technology and not technology first. With that though, I was in the the fenestration industry when the housing market crashed. And so my husband and I both working in the same industry wasn't a great idea. So we decided (laughs) to diversify a little bit. And that's when I moved into healthcare. And that's been about 10 years. And I truly love the mission of the Marshfield Clinic Health System. And when I arrived at the health system, you know, it was at a project management position. And by doing a number of things around project management, I had the opportunity to become very visible in the IT organization. Again, leading with people and process and looking at it from a business perspective and a consumer perspective, I think made it a little unique. And so by doing that, I became very visible. And so when you think about growing in leadership positions, Mentorship and sponsorship is really important when you think about your network and how you're meeting people. And I had the opportunity to become visible on a number of things that people continue to compel me into additional positions, which continued to build on the visibility within the organization. And so I got selected for a few projects that put me very close to the executives of the organization and then reported directly to the CIO. She also then selected me for a mentorship program. It's called the Carol Emmett Fellowship. And the organization sponsored me to attend this fellowship where I got to really be within a cohort of wonderful women that are being looked at for executive positions in healthcare and had the opportunity to not only build out my network, build out some of my mentoring, but also finding a voice to help with some of the things like imposter syndrome and those types of things that you find when you're reaching positions like this. 
And so through that, I had the opportunity then the the CIO position became available and I was selected for it. And I've been in this position for the last two and a half years and truly enjoy what I'm doing. So that's a really long answer to that question. No, no, that's phenomenal. I mean, I love this whole description because this idea of looking at things business first, even though you start off as a developer, that's one of those key themes I keep hearing in digital transformation and in particular in the success of the role of the CIO or the tech leader. How important, I'm assuming it is important for you, but how important do you think that is for other tech leaders, for for men, women, anybody who's in the position of being a tech leader to think that first? Is that the transition point? It's absolutely critical. It, and it is a transition point. Um, when one of the things that I had worked on shortly before becoming the CIO, I had worked on reorganizing our IS organization. And we went from being a really kind of a servant where we would take a help desk ticket and just blindly implement or blindly buy the piece of software and just implement it in the organization. And what we've done is we've actually translated it into uh, being a service organization where we're business partners. And if you think about it, the, the TBM Council, Actio, those types of groups um, really have this dialed in as well. But when you're thinking about it from a business partnership standpoint, the first question you always ask is, okay, what problem are we trying to solve? Right. And then understanding the business, we're, our job is to lay the technology on top of what problem they're trying to solve, regardless of the name of the vendor that we're implementing. And so when we do it that way, we really understand the workflow the problem, it, it turns into a conversation about business outcomes and what are we going to do to help them succeed in making this transformation. And by doing that, I find that we are significantly involved. We are being brought to the table for all of those conversations. I think that's also one of the things that helped elevate me into the executive position and what we have as far as the group of executive leaders that are making decisions around strategy. It's not always that IT is at the table, but that's when IT gets invited is when we're looking at it in the same light that the executives are looking at it and where the strategy is being developed. That's phenomenal. I most recently had these conversations with CIOs struggling to do exactly what you just said and to bring that to the executive level and and actually give it articulated in a way to the board of directors so that they can then think about the overall risk of the company or the organization to not transforming or not becoming digital first. Do you think there is a risk in healthcare or for that matter, for tech leaders in any industry who don't think about this digital first strategy and the approach and being able to drive transformation through IT? Oh, yeah, I do think that there's a risk. Healthcare in general is a very highly regulated and compressed environment. And when you're thinking about anything that you're implementing, it can become very, not only costly, but inefficient if you just implement technology and look at it from just a technology perspective. From a digital perspective and a digital front door, the consumers are going to have a choice. And as healthcare organizations start adopting these types of changes, the consumers will have the opportunity to figure out what works best for them. And if we're not transforming into that way, we're going to struggle as an organization. And one of the things that I love about the Marshfield Clinic Health System is that we are innovative. These are conversations we have on a daily basis. And so 
it is thinking about that consumer first and how do we meet them where they are so that way we can better serve them. I want to go back and talk about, you had mentioned a point earlier uh, from a technology standpoint, how does it make people feel, right? So I want to go back and now talk about the future of healthcare and those experiences, right? Because you're talking about it's hard to replicate the patient-doctor relationship in person. Right. But it's getting harder and harder to get people to come based on many different factors, whether that's, you know, pandemic or just travel time, busy lives, et cetera, et cetera. And so the question here is, you know, where do you think that something like VR plays in the role of healthcare? So, yeah, there's probably a, a few areas and we do have some VR capability that we're utilizing within our organization as well. It does give you that opportunity to, you know, I think about it from like a rehabilitation standpoint, um, when you can give people some area to be able to, you know, as we're learning from a walking perspective. Having a VR, you're not necessarily looking at your hospital room. You can actually simulate walking in an environment, which actually helps people feel differently about rehabilitation. Just certain things like that that can help out from that perspective. And you think about all of the things. Being in healthcare right now is probably one of the cooler times, I think, to be in healthcare from an IT perspective, because we're starting to talk about things like AI, remote patient monitoring. RPA, being able to automate certain things instead of us being able to have to manually do all of these inefficient workflows. This is a really fun time to be in healthcare and VR is one of those capabilities. So when you think about your day as a technology leader, how would you divide your workload? How much of your time is allocated by percentage to innovation, to strategy, to keep the lights on, to process improvement. Do you have a split on that or is this all one model? So and that's a great question. And when you started asking it, I'm thinking, okay, how would I model that out? Because it does vary. So I'm glad that we went from day to like a year. <laughs> because it does vary. We have a really ambitious roadmap. And I would say probably we are much more in about a 50-50 state when it comes to operational efficiencies and operating foundational applications running the business. And then uh, about 50% of it would be considered innovative. We're actually in the process of trying to tilt that much more to the innovative side of it by optimizing how we are doing to run the business and operational work as well. From a strategic standpoint, you know, I would say most of my day has to be spent on strategy. So it's really dependent on me building out the right operational team. So when I talk about operational type items, it's usually working with the leadership team that I have in place to making sure that they're supported and being able to deliver on the operational items as well. That makes a lot of sense. And that definitely fits with this whole idea of defining as a leader, a much more strategic role and driving transformation at the technical level, but also the business level. Switching a little bit of gears and going into your position as a woman who's in a high powered job and in a big position as an executive, you mentioned mentorship and mm -hmm. sponsorship along the way in your journey to this position. What are some key examples of what that looks like and what advice can you give or examples can you give to our listening audience who are thinking about these same sort of things? So from a sponsorship standpoint, again, I talked a little bit about being in positions where you get noticed. So one of the pieces of advice that I would give is sometimes I wasn't always sure 
you know, if it was the best project for me or if it was something that I really, you know, needed to work on. But it was always one of these, hmm, yeah, let's, let's try that and let's do that. And by being in the right place at the right time, you do end up building those relationships that come in handy when the next project comes up or the, the higher profile type of item comes up that um, your name is on the tip of people's tongues. And so it's one of the things that I would always say from a sponsorship standpoint is definitely a try it if you are asked to do work on something that is a different project or even in an area in the business getting to know those business partners is pretty critical from being noticed as well and then from a mentorship standpoint one of the things that um, until I was actually given mentors I didn't understand truly the value of having mentors and there is such a value in understanding your blind spots and being able to talk through something, uh, something confidentially, especially if they have your best interests in mind and understand what your goals are, having a mentor, it can be a game changer. And one of the things that I learned throughout that process is that you have to ask. A lot of people don't necessarily think to ask for a mentor or look at somebody and say, maybe they could help me. And then asking. And one of the things that I have learned through that process is just by asking, you can easily find people that can help you and your career. So just, you know, if you're sitting in a meeting or you're sitting in a conversation and saying, man, I wish I could, you know, I wish I could present like that person, or I wish I knew more about that, then ask and ask if somebody can mentor you and teach you. And I have found that that is so valuable and people are always you know most of the time are unless they're extraordinarily busy which is understandable and they're always willing to help and always willing to mentor so i think it's just the asking so and as uh, we are going through what i think arguably is a faster or quicker pace of social change or social evolution obviously the workplace dynamic the sense of equity and not just equity in terms of the the statement of an actual buy-in occurs, is this notion of reluctance or fear or concern something that you've seen as a dynamic for women who are aspiring for bigger positions? Because you, clearly you've conquered it. You've figured out ways that just to tell yourself, no, I don't need to be afraid of this. No jobs beneath me. I'm going to go do this, by the way. And, but you know, you, you told your husband, look, get on the back of the bike. So are there things that women can, that you've learned can tell themselves or approaches they can take to get them past maybe some of this reluctance? I don't know if I have all the answers on it. Um, I could be just naively walking into something too, in some cases, but one of the things that came to mind as you were, you were talking about that is that in order to grow, you actually do have to step outside your comfort zone. and. That can be extraordinarily difficult to do, but it can be rewarding. And so one of the tactics that I always use is just to take a deep breath and sometimes even do meditation beforehand. Those are a couple of things that I will do in order to make sure that I feel much more comfortable walking into a situation. And the other thing is knowing that every situation is just one minute of the day out of many, many, many days. And so just keeping those in the back of my mind as I'm going through some of these situations. And there was one other thing that popped in my head, but I can't remember it exactly right now that I was thinking of as you were asking the question. But the other one, you know, people talk a lot about imposter syndrome and 
I think women probably feel that more than men. And one of the things that I have told women that I know that have come to me and said, I don't know if I can do this, or I don't know, you know, if I can do this presentation. And I always have to remind somebody that, and I always use these words of advice. It's like, you are meant to be here right now. And so you are supposed to be here right now. And I think just hearing that and reminding people can build up some courage because you're meant to sit at the table. You are meant to be there. And hearing that just builds some of that courage as well. I absolutely love that. In fact, I will borrow it with attribution. That is fantastic, Jerry. I mean, I think that is, I'm certain it is true for women. I think it is also true for anybody who's looking to aspire for something more and do something better. That is phenomenal. So as you think about this last year at a a very personal level, as we talk about now the personal transformations that are occurring beyond digital and, and social, what has been that challenge in this last year or what has been the transformation in this last year that you've had to address, that you've had to find a way to uh, conquer? Yeah, so, and this is probably a little more personal. When I signed up for being a CIO, I knew it was gonna be a very demanding job. And uh, prior to the pandemic, my family was struggling a little bit with it. And even to the point where my daughter would struggle uh, with me traveling and I had to do it all the time. We actually had to buy bracelets that I could tap or she could, you know, feel me tapping her during the day and she would have one as well. And she could tap me when she needed me as well, no matter what we were doing. And it was always something that was a struggle for me to figure out how am I going to be a mom in the middle of this? And I have an extraordinarily supportive husband, which has been one of the key things that has just been able to help me get through, you know, so many long days and and working hours. But one of the transformations that I went through over this last year was as soon as everything started happening with COVID, I mean, it was, I would get text messages at five in the morning and I would be on my computer until nine at night, 10 at night, as we were transforming and, and closing clinics and moving things. But at the same time, my kids were going through this transformation that their school was closed. And suddenly now I'm homeschooling with them. (laughs) And my husband is still, he was considered an essential worker. So he was still going into the office, fully masked up and everything like that when they could do so. And trying to figure out how to do this and still support them without just it becoming an evening night uh, crying fest of us trying to figure out how to do this. And I suddenly realized that at a certain point in the day is when it worked best for my daughter. And so I gave myself permission for the first time to just say, I'm not available during this time. And doing that felt really good about being a mom. And it actually made me feel like I can do this and be a mom. And so I've given myself a lot more permission to do certain things like that, that works for my family, because it's not that I don't work hard enough and that it's not that I'm not busy. It just means that I need to do what's right for them as well. And having that happen kind of gave me that transformation in order to be able to do that. And interesting enough, I received so many thank yous from my staff because it gave them permission to, and for them to do what they needed to do, which was surprising to me because you know, it almost felt like I was being selfish and guilty, but I needed to do it. But I found that it set a good example. When they say that people are always watching you as leaders, they really are. And so at some point we need to set a good example too. 
Jerry, that may be one of the most phenomenal answers I've heard on this show. That is awesome. <laughs> Everything about it. And I'll have to tell you that I have a colleague who is struggling with that. And this is the advice I am going to give her. Mm-hmm. That is phenomenal. Okay. So we have come to <laughs> the last <laughs> section of our podcast, which is where our audience gets to know a little bit more about you on some other matters. And I, I, I because of the Harley thing, I, I have to ask the very first question. What is the Harley you ride and what is your favorite Harley that you would like to own? I drive a 99-883 Sportster, which is a smaller bike. Again, it's been a bike since I've had it since I've been 19. So it's been, uh, wow. it's an older bike, but I do love it. And if I had to pick one, it would actually be a fat boy. Favorite superhero and why? So, you know, there's the typical, um, you know, Wonder Woman. I love Wonder Woman, but I think my favorite superhero would probably be Storm out of X-Men. Oh, wow. Cool. If anything dictates everybody's mood for the day, it's the weather. And if I can fix that someday, <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> favorite movie? So I would actually go with A League of Their Own. Oh, that's an awesome movie. Yes, yeah, it steps out of the conformity. It put women in the spotlight. And uh, it definitely means that you know women should be at the table. You know, I was in uh, Palm Beach, Florida. And I met that whole team as they were going to reunion. I met the woman who was Dottie. You're kidding me. No, no, no. I actually was at like this little breakfast brunch and they were sitting at another table and I realized who they were. And of course I went over and introduced myself uh, and, and wasted 20 minutes of their life, but they were amazing. They were just awesome. I love that. I'm so jealous. That would have been incredible. (laughs) Yeah, I I thought so too. So I decided I'm not going to let this moment go by. Favorite actor or actress? You know, I don't know if I have one. So I don't watch a ton of movies. I watch ones once in a while when my kids want me to, but um, I'm much more of a person that has the Brewer game on in the background. So obviously from (laughs) Wisconsin, I have the Brewers on. So um, So, I usually have that on the background when I'm, when I'm doing things. I I have to ask, were you excited about the other night? Mm Mm-hmm. Except I'm not used to staying up that late anymore. And so I'm going to start those games earlier. (laughs) Wednesday wasn't so rough of a day. (laughs) What a phenomenal uh, event for all of Wisconsin, much less Milwaukee. Last question. What's the one thing you would ask or tell our audience to think about in the next year? Just be kind. Simple. Jerry, that, that is, is, is phenomenal. The, your journey, uh, the leadership and transformation, the focus for the business, driving innovation, uh, what to do to overcome fear, the sense of empathy, and uh, you deserve to be here. That is just awesome. We really appreciate you being on the show. Mark, take us out. That has been the NetFX podcast where we talk about leadership, digital, social, and personal transformation. We want to thank our guest today. Jerry Coaster, the CIO of Marshfield Clinic Health System. We really appreciate your time and thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.